like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, My Baby was a joke song? A little bit, because Hello was, the telephone was new when it was written. Uh So Hello was a new slang word. Hello was slang? Hello was slang. Hello! Alexander Graham Bell thought we should answer the phone, Ahoy! Right. And that's why Robert, or that's why uh, Burns. Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns says, ahoy, ahoy. Ahoy, ahoy. Uh, <laughs> because of that. <laughs> but I guess people settled on hello, which was literally a slang word. It was like LOL of its time. What? And so they, they were like, that That song is basically like LOL chat room, baby, or whatever. Like, that's what that song is essentially in its time. So it was like writing chat room lover or something. Wow. Okay. So at the time, people were like, well, the kids these days, they're all saying hello to each other. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Wow. That song, I guess, is about a guy who met someone on the telephone. Like, he doesn't know her in real life. Well, and which at the time, I guess, was like, remember when online dating was new and yes. it was, like, embarrassing yes. to say that you met someone online? And now it's literally the only way the to only do way it. The only way to meet people. <laughs> as far as I know. Um, that's, it, oh, man, Isn't I didn't know funny? the phone was like that. That's funny. I know, and you know, this was a little internet post. Should probably no, no, no. Hey, if you read it, I'm sure it was like, was it a tweet or a graphic somewhere? It was a graphic. Then I don't know if we can't trust those. Then Uh, what are we doing here? If we can't trust graphics we read on the internet with (laughs) information presented as fact, Mm -hmm. then I feel like the world might be in trouble. Mm, Big problems. Yeah. But big, big fortunately, problem. we can trust that yes. as fact. So, look, I'm fascinated by it. I'm taking it as true. I will spread it far and wide, including okay. on this 
podcast, which right? is about history. Yeah. And y'all can take that take as that fact history. from us. It's facts. <laughs> facts in that it's a facsimile of a fact. Oh, that's a clever twist on the word <laughs> fact. <laughs> facsimile of the truth. It's a fax. Online facts. <laughs> Your Honor, I did not say it was a fact. What I, I said, said it was, was a fact, as in facsimile. Facsimile. <laughs> Unbelievable. Do you think that'll hold up? I think it'll hold up. Well, speaking of um, the court, court of public opinion, of court in general, True. the legal system. I love that. Way to tie it in. You know, Good we've got to find these places to make a smooth transition. <laughs> speaking of smooth transitions, mm. um, <laughs> speaking of explosive new information. Oh, there you go. We've got a hot one today. We do. Truly. Really, I mean, it's right on the pulse of what every American is talking about. After right? they finish talking about Barbie. Right, right. <laughs> Which is worth a lot of discussion. <laughs> we, we saw both. We did see both. We saw both. And we'll, yeah, we we'll did not save... do a double feature, Barbenheimer. No. Feature, but... We saw Barbie first. Mm -hmm. um, like, lar largely... When it came, the day it came out. <laughs> yeah, we saw it Thursday, yeah. Um, largely because I could not get tickets to IMAX Oppenheimer until the Monday after its opening weekend because it was right. just sold out. Mm -hmm. So we, we went to Oppenheimer Monday. And I, I, I say let's actually let's reserve our review for the end just in case people don't want to hear mm, uh, if they haven't idea. seen it yet, yeah, you know, absolutely. for either movie. But right. I, I would say thumbs up for both. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. We, we can talk more about it at the end. Maybe. Both great times in the theater with very different moods. <laughs> but yeah, we did see Oppenheimer. Yeah. We did enjoy it. Two thumbs up yeah. from both of us. Yeah. But I did find myself a little frustrated, and I certainly was not the only one. There's a million, million articles uh -huh. <laughs> that you can read about this from film critics. But I did find myself a little frustrated by the lack of development from the women's characters, the women in the movie, yes. who were very important to Robert Oppenheimer. Right, right. And I'll just jump in and say, you know, with this this goes a little long. We definitely had to split it into two parts. But, <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, but it actually works out really well, I think, because part one of this episode, it's very much like the biography of his life. And the movie is very much a biopic of Robert Oppenheimer. So for the most part, I don't personally feel like anything here is spoiler heavy mm -hmm. in terms of anything from the movie being like, oh, shit. Whoa, surprise. I, I'm so glad I didn't know that. Like, this is very much just kind of uh, we're doing his life uh, much the same way Nolan did. Mm -hmm. There is there is one major character death in his life that mm -hmm. is a big impact. And we do say that in this episode. Um, so I guess that's a little more more spoilery, but it's also like it's history. Um, so it's like, you know, heads up, right. the Titanic sinks. But um, <laughs> Spoiler alert, <laughs> but, the boat's know, not around. But it's OK. So I also think that in this that particular case, it's yeah. it's maybe more interesting to know some of the history sure, sure. while you're watching it than the other way around. Yeah. So. And then enjoy looking it up after the movie. Yeah, exactly. As I did. So, yeah, we definitely will be referencing the movie throughout. So yeah. Of course, if you haven't seen it and you don't want to be spoiled at all anyway, if feel free like to me. save this until after you've seen the film. If you're like me and like, I I don't want to know his wife's name before right. I see it. I don't want anything in my brain. Yes. <laughs> Eli does not like Tabula at all any information. I can't stop thinking Blank about it. Blank slate style. I can't. It's a problem. I recognize it's a problem, but it's how I enjoy right. things. I, so. do, I do see that. I yeah. do see that. In part two of this episode of ours is a, just the tail end of his story. And it has a little bit more of like those oh shit moments from the movie where mm -hmm. I, I would have rather not known that stuff going in. So I think you're basically I'm saying I think you're safe with part one. And part two of this episode, maybe save until after you've seen the movie, if you care about that kind of thing. 
And we'll also get into our sort of response to the movie and the Barbie movie in part two as well. Obviously, because it's a double feature of the millennium. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. So that's pretty exciting. So at any rate, all that to say, a little frustrated about the lack of development for these women's characters. I wanted to know more about who they were, why they matter to Oppenheimer, what, you know, what, what part they played in this whole scenario. And, you know. I know a movie can't do everything, so yeah. not trying to talk shit about Christopher Nolan, whatever, whatever. But I just just wanted to know more about him. I was really curious. So we figured that we would take this time on this episode to dive in, tell you a little bit more about Oppenheimer's personal trinity, the three most important women in his life, Jean Tatlock, Ruth Tolman, and his wife, Catherine Oppenheimer. All right, I want to know. Bombs away. Okay. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. All right, we're going to start with Gene Tatlock who Robert Oppenheimer met at a Berkeley house party in 1936. Now, her father was an acclaimed English scholar. He was an expert on Geoffrey Chaucer. And he was already friends with Oppenheimer. He was very impressed by Oppenheimer's literary knowledge. Mm, I guess for a scientific guy, he's a big reader. So he he was like, I like you. (laughs) We can chat about books. And Jean was no slouch herself, all right, in the brain department. She spent time with Jungian psychoanalysts in Switzerland. And then she attended Vassar College to study English. Can you imagine hanging out with a bunch of Jungian psychoanalysts? I just It feels like an exhausting time it to does. me. I feel like every word I say, you're going to be like, oh my God, here really we go again. Get into it. No, don't analyze me. I just wanted to get a cup of coffee. Analyze this. Analyze that. <laughs> <The> movie <laughs> with Billy Crystal. What a reference. I would love to see young Jungian psychoanalysts watch, watch analyze, analyze this. this. And tell me yeah. how they feel about but their field of back science. in the 1930s. But exactly. Yeah. It'll be like, this is what's coming. <laughs> this is what you have wrought. <laughs> Katie Rich, uh, who wrote a Vanity Fair article called Jean Tatlock, The Tragic Story of J. Robert Oppenheimer's Truest Love, mm. writes that one of Jean's classmates once said that Jean Tatlock was, quote, the most promising girl I ever knew. The only one out of all I saw around me in college that even then seemed touched with greatness. Wow. High praise from a classmate. I know, right? I feel like this classmate might have had a little crush. Maybe. Maybe. She's like, Jean was also super hot. (laughs) And I loved her handwriting. Mm -hmm. Is she going to read this? I thought she was the most (laughs) promising person I ever met. The only one of us touched with greatness. And if I could get a touch of that greatness. I'd love to touch that greatness myself. (laughs) Uh, She graduated faster. She went to Berkeley to complete prerequisite courses that were required to enroll at Stanford Medical School. And this is when she also attended a fundraiser thrown by her landlady for the communist-backed Spanish Republicans fighting the Spanish Civil War. Mm. At this point, Jean was already a dues-paying member of the Communist Party, so she was already fully into all this stuff. She once told a friend, quote, I just wouldn't want to go on living if I didn't believe that in Russia, everything is better. Oh, my. Yay. Yeah, From I mean, our perspective of Russia, it's not great in 2023, I no, guess. So no. <laughs> it seems like a very naive quote. 
But I suppose at the time you were like, revolution is happening, some really exciting things in Russia. Right, right. Well, the propaganda, propaganda machine is strong it, uh, across sure the world is. in across all these big countries, us included. Very true. Now, another guest at this party was a man named, a tall, skinny guy named J. Robert Oppenheimer. He was 10 years older than Jean, and she inspired him in more ways than one. She got him into the poetry of John Donne, and we'll circle back to that later. But she also introduced him to her friends and the causes that she felt passionate about, like the Spanish Civil War and the plight of migrant workers. She probably turned to him and was like, you know, in Russia, everything's nice. You know, in Russia, she's probably going to nah. shut up about it. Yeah. Like, we get it. You in did your Russia. study abroad in Russia. Like, come on. <laughs> workers in Russia unite. <laughs> now it's time for the world's workers. It's like me now. Like, well, you know, uh, the wine in Italy doesn't have the sugar in it that French wine does. So if you ever get a chance, everything's better in Italy. Honeymoon alert. But despite her introducing him to all this ideology, Annabel Nugent in the independent article Oppenheimer's Women points out that Oppenheimer likely would have looked into communist ideology all by himself. He didn't yeah. need Gene's help necessarily because his brother, Frank, and a lot of his colleagues at Berkeley were already members of the Communist Party. They were already outspoken critics of Franco's war in Spain. So it, it, it was all around him already. Mm -hmm. Now, Patricia Klaus and Shirley Straczynski, who wrote this book in 2013 called An Atomic Love Story, The Extraordinary Women in Robert Oppenheimer's Life, also point out that even Gene Tatlock's conservative father gave money to the ambulance corps. Yeah. They write, quote, I think that for Gene and Oppenheimer, their shared interest in psychology was a stronger bond. And from Gene, one of their friends would later say, Oppenheimer learned to be compassionate. Hmm. So they're not having pillow talk about communism every night, right? right. Like, yeah. He's, he's kind of like, yeah, I already know. Right. Communism's cool, whatever. Sure, whatever. And yeah. they had a lot of other stuff to talk about. Yeah, well, and to point out that, like, communism as a, as a whole was a very trendy thing. Yeah. And it was, a lot of people were very interested in it, whether they joined the party or not. Right. You know, they were very interested in a lot of what it had to say, a lot of the philosophy of it and so on. Uh, of course, the practice, the way it was applied, naturally, we know, you know, with hindsight, yeah, how it yeah, all yeah. went down. <laughs> but at the time, it was very exciting, very different way to think about things. A lot of people really, really into it. Well, and that her father, who was conservative and probably, mm -hmm. you know, leaned fairly against communism, was more, more pro-American capitalism, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Even people like that right. were looking at the ambulance corps. They're looking at the Spanish yes. Civil War and they're like, yeah, I don't like what's going on over there. I might not be a communist, right. but what the, the fascists, fascists are doing is yeah. real bad. Exactly. Which, of course, would have been a, an ideology that permeated throughout the 1930s and 40s. Exactly. Because people were like, you know what? Today, fascism's worse. Yeah, right. Let's <laughs> let's think it through. Here. Yeah. But also like just the workers, the the unionizing yeah. and the labor stuff was yeah. all wrapped up with the communist stuff. Right. But it was a very it was kind of its own thing. A lot of people were like, workers should really get paid normal money or yeah. shouldn't be working a thousand hours and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So even if you were a conservative, you were like, yeah, y'all you, should unionize the ambulance workers. Right. Like y'all should really get this going. Right. So because people getting paid fair wages for their work is not inherently communist ideology. <laughs> right. Right. No matter how much they try to convince you, uh -huh. oh, if you think people should be paid for their work, they must be communists. You're a socialist. You're a communist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We've seen it now. Yep. So, OK. In the movie, Gene is often shown pretty mad at 
Oppenheimer for getting her flowers. She yeah. She'll take a bouquet and throw it immediately in the trash. Uh-huh. Apparently that is true. She did tell him to stop getting her flowers all the time. <laughs> uh, he also proposed to Jean Tatlock two oh. times, but she turned him down both times. Third time's a charm, buddy. Yeah, I know, right? He was like, I'm, I'm See, all geared up away. to ask her again. But for whatever reason, she did not want to marry him. But then Oppenheimer met Kitty Puning. In 1939, I think I'm saying that right. And that kind of spelled the end of his affair with Jean. But they still met twice a year after he married Kitty. Uh, Oppenheimer explained during his security hearing in 1954, quote, We had been very much involved with one another, and there was still a very deep feeling when we saw each other. Mm-hmm. They met up for the last time when Oppenheimer was in Berkeley in June 1943. At this point, he was the director of the Manhattan Project. The FBI was basically tailing him everywhere. They were paying attention to every little thing he did. Mm-hmm. Jean was a pediatric psychiatrist at Mount Zion. She was doing some very important work with troubled youth. Um, so really great psychiatrist. Yeah. They don't talk about that in the film, but that's what she was up to. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, the FBI tailed. Robert Oppenheimer and Jean to dinner and then to a hotel. They wrote in their official report, quote, the relationship of Oppenheimer and Tatlock appears to be very affectionate and intimate. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why he talks like that, but that's what he sounds this, like. This uh, FBI agent <laughs> is uh, quite the cool dude. He's a really cool say. guy. He's like a morning radio DJ. <laughs> and, well, he's driving up the 505 and finding out that Robert Oppenheimer and Gene Tatlock have a very intimate and affectionate relationship. Back over to you, Joe. J. Edgar Hoover liked to be entertained by his FBI <laughs> yeah, reports, right. so you had to put on a little fun character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give me the, all the information you have on Martin Luther King, but make it silly. <laughs> make it fun. Do it in a funny voice. That does kind of sound like uh, J. Uh, Edgar Hoover. I do <laughs> feel like you would. He'd totally be like, now do it like you just sucked in a lot of helium. <laughs> Go. <laughs> Uh, Oppenheimer explained in his security hearing that she that Jean called him to visit her because, quote, she was still in love with me. Mm. But this is when Oppenheimer ended their affair once and for all. And seven months later, on January 4th, 1944, Jean Tatlock died by suicide. I I think it's really interesting with them. Um, Their continued sort of deep relationship, I think, just shows what an intellectual companionship they had. Mm -hmm. Right. Because that's someone who, yeah, they they had a physical relationship. But I think it was the fact that they were on a similar level, that they had all these conversations about what ideology or science Mm -hmm. or, you know, these things that they were both interested in. Mm -hmm. And that became, yeah, literature and poetry. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, they still maintained that bond even after they separated that is, I don't know, that that's just intellectually intimate, mm-hmm. right? Like that that often, I think, never really goes away when you have that kind of connection with someone yeah, that goes beyond that. physical. So whether or not they continued their intimate, affectionate, physical relationship or not, they were always going to be connected like that, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I see that. Yeah. I see that. I think they were still having a physical yeah, yeah, yeah. affair at this time, but right. I totally agree. It's It's one of those things... That, I don't know. Robert Oppenheimer is one of the smartest people in, in the world at yeah, this time. Right. How many people can he talk to? Exactly, right? right. Like, I mean, he's surrounded by a lot of very smart sure. people. So he's fine. Right, We're not right. worried about him and his <laughs> social life. But, you know, I just think it must have been very special to meet, um, especially a woman at that time. So it's just limited education opportunity. Yeah. So many women would leave yeah. school to have children or start a family or whatever or discouraged from being there in the first place exactly yeah. so you know it just might have been hard to find a woman that he felt like he could really have that kind of hold that 
level of conversation with. Yeah. So it'd be hard to let go of a person like yeah. that. At the time of Jean's suicide, she had already been undergoing treatment for depression. Klaus and Strashinsky in The Atomic Love Story suggest that she probably would have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder today. Mm-hmm. But losing her connection to Oppenheimer was a real blow. Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, in their 2005 book, American Prometheus, which is the book that Nolan based the movie Oppenheimer on mostly, mm-hmm. they wrote, quote, for reasons of love and compassion, he had become a key member of Gene's psychological support structure. And then he vanished mysteriously. In Gene's eyes, it may have seemed as if ambition had trumped love. Mm. He chose the bomb over me kind, yeah. of, kind of thing. Not that she knew what he was working on. Right, but. right. Or like his, his drive for, I mean, married to his job, you mm-hmm. know, like his, his relentless drive to succeed right. in what his, he feels like is his chosen or his predetermined path. Right. Is, I guess, more important than his time with me. Mm-hmm. For somebody who's already depressed, that that can sting, I'm yeah, sure, really absolutely. badly. Well, he might have felt just like a buttress. Just even seeing him twice a year was yeah. enough. And then when yeah. he was like, I can't see you anymore, it was like, oh, right. well, now that one string that's tying me down yeah. is gone. And so I'm just, you know out here yeah. alone in the fucking cosmos, <laughs> you know. And, you know, in, in sort of, I don't know if it's defense of his character, but just sort of for clarification, um, you know, having seen the movie, he was, he couldn't really go see her anymore. It was very difficult for him to get out of Los Alamos. He wasn't allowed to talk to anyone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so it's not so much that he was like, yeah, screw you, I'm more important, I'm more interested in work now. Mm-hmm. Um, he might have been able to make a little more effort, but it was very difficult for him to get to see her. I mean, there was people that he was working for who were actively saying, don't you dare go see her. She's a communist. Oh, yeah. And you're not allowed to go see anybody while you're working on this project. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, and he's married. He's married. He's got a wife. Obviously, so yeah. If he's yeah. going to spend time with somebody and give his heart to somebody, <laughs> yeah. it should probably be her. <laughs> that, that little factor, too. Yeah. But an additional factor in Jean's suicide might have been that she was also struggling with her sexuality. Hmm. In An Atomic Love Story, they share a letter from her to a friend where she wrote, quote, There was a period when I thought I was homosexual. I still am, in a way, forced to believe it. But really, logically, I am sure that I can't be because of my unmasculinity. And in American Prometheus... She tells a friend that she tried to overcome her same-sex attraction by, quote, sleeping with every bull she could find. So doesn't that go right back into our very early stereotypical beliefs of what a homosexual person looks and behaves like? Oh, yeah. She didn't know about lipstick lesbians. I right, guess. right. Or that she could or that if she slept with the manliest men she could find, mm-hmm. that would, you know, undo her attraction to women. Well, and she's a psychologist in an right. early part of this field, mm-hmm. and that's that is what they believed yeah, for yeah. a long time. So she's she's feeling like she has the best information there is to have, right. and right. this is how shitty it's making her feel. Yeah, you exactly. know what I'm saying? Exactly. Anyway, tragically, it was Jean's father who found her the day after her suicide, oh, and I just find that so that's upsetting. Really heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, he actually knocked on her door and did not get an answer, so he had to climb in through the window. And he found her on a pile of cushions by the bathtub with her head submerged in water. Oh, my God. She had left an unsigned suicide note, which read, quote, I am disgusted with everything. 
To those who loved me and helped me, all love and courage. I wanted to live and to give, and I got paralyzed somehow. I tried like hell to understand and couldn't. I think I would have been a liability all my life. At least I could take away the burden of a paralyzed soul from a fighting world. This is such an interesting headspace. Mm-hmm. Disgusted with everything. To those who loved me and helped me, all love and courage. I wanted to live and to give, and I got paralyzed. I tried like hell to understand and couldn't. I've been a liability. Who is she talking about? A liability to whom? What is she trying to understand? Is that got to do with her sexuality? Is that got to do with communism? Is that, got, you know? Right. I don't There's know, so many but, things in there that it could apply to. And it might be all those things. It yeah. might be everything. She's like, everything in my life has been so confusing and hard. And, and challenging. I'm, and I'm right? done. I'm yeah. just done. And it's a challenge to the people that I bring into my life. Mm-hmm. Like, she feels like she's, I wonder if, She's taking part of that for, with Oppenheimer, for example, where she's like, he's got government agents watching him all the time because he likes me and yeah. I'm a communist. Yeah, I'm you know, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm such a I'm such a challenge for the people that I care about. Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah. a really difficult feeling. Well, her father lay her body on her bed, and then he went through all her correspondence. He burned some letters and photographs, and then he called the police. Trying to hmm. maintain her privacy, I, right, I imagine. Right, yeah. Because of Oppenheimer's 1943 visit to Jean, her phone had been wiretapped by the FBI. They decided she needed to be under surveillance. So actually, J. Edgar Hoover was one of the first people to learn that she was dead. Wow. Boy, that guy was the first person to learn a lot of shit. Okay, he? he had his fucking fingers in way too many pies. Mmm, <laughs> pie. <laughs> Make me a pie, but do it in a silly costume. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll eat it in the silly costume. Yeah. Now, okay, speaking of J. Edgar Hoover, mm-hmm. there is a conspiracy theory, because there always is around this oh, yeah. guy, because he certainly I mean, invited them. <laughs> he wanted it, and he got it. There's a theory that Gene did not commit suicide, but possibly was killed by the FBI. Ew. Now, among other reasons, it's because one of the drugs found in her system was chloral hydrate, which is a chemical that you combine with alcohol to make a... Mickey Finn oh. or a concoction that'll knock someone out cold. That's some Al Capone. Stuff. Yeah. Give me old Mickey Finn. <laughs> Give me old Mickey Finn and drop him in the ocean. <laughs> now, uh, one doctor told the authors of American Prometheus, quote, if you were clever and wanted to kill someone, this is the way to do it. E. But a number of things here don't really line up in terms of this conspiracy theory, because Jean herself would have had easy access to chlorohydrate on her own since she worked as a psychiatrist in a hospital. And a Mickey Finn requires chloral hydrate to be mixed with alcohol, but there was no alcohol in Jean's system. They definitely saw by like her state of her organs that she was a heavy drinker, but at yeah. that time she had no alcohol in her system. Right, right. So, therefore, so what, the, the chloral, chloral hydrate, hydrate wouldn't have knocked her out. Not necessarily, which right. which still is like so weird that she would take it at all. Why is it in her system to the, begin with? For exactly. the water thing. Yeah, exactly. It's still weird. Exactly. But, but apparently that's not how a Mickey Finn works. So Now, the prime suspect, according to Katie Rich in Vanity Fair, is supposedly Boris Pash, who, if you have seen the movie, is Casey Affleck's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, I won't say much if you haven't seen the movie, but if talk about shuddering. Okay. Talk about chills. Very small part, real creep. but he really was a real creep. Real creep. <laughs> and so he's the prime suspect here. But Boris Pash had actually been reassigned to London by the time she died. Right. He so was nowhere near it, her. It's hard to say. Again, this conspiracy does kind of start to fall apart. Yeah. But 
No one could put anything past J. Edgar Hoover. Nope. And all his conspiracies seem to fall apart after a little while. <laughs> and isn't that exactly how he would have designed them? <laughs> so suspicions still linger today mm. about whether or not she really killed herself. And I'll say, from what we've learned and the way that's presented the movie, which obviously is a movie, it's got its own ideas about how it wants to make you feel at certain times and stuff. But it's it's pretty suspect to me. Honestly, they're both equally plausible yeah um, because gene was not happy person right but yeah i i wouldn't if you if you if it came out today that they've proved that the fbi or the cia or whatever killed mm -hmm. gene tatlock i would be like well i'm not surprised yeah, makes sense to <laughs> i'm me. not surprised doing that now oppenheimer was devastated yeah. truly truly devastated by gene's death um his close friend robert serber says in american prometheus quote Jean was Robert's truest love. He loved her the most. He was devoted to her. Mm. When he was asked about what to name the atomic bomb test, he suggested Trinity as a tribute to Jean. It's taken from a devotional poem by John Donne, the poet that she had introduced him to. Mm -hmm. So let's go down to Poetry Corner and hear Batter My Heart, Three-Personed God by John Donne. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but as captive, and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. This is one of those, like, historical moments where I'm like, did John Dunn say... I got to write a poem for the guy who's going to invent the nuclear bomb <laughs> one day. This just lines up so perfectly. Kind of does. Like the your force to break, blow, burn and make me new. Yeah. Is like exactly what the atomic bomb did. It's yeah. it's it's so mm -hmm. it's perfect. Mm -hmm. I can totally see why it came to his mind in yeah. relation to the atomic yeah. bomb. And also, uh, oh, I'm I'm kind of in love with this communist lady, uh, but I'm betrothed unto your enemy. Like I'm, mm. I'm literally part of the American government right now. Right. I'm, I'm set up with this destructive force that very much dislikes you. So divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. To, you know, can can I can I get a break here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I also see it in terms of bigger the bomb itself. Uh huh. You know, he is he loves the science. Yeah, sure. But he's betrothed to the enemy of the science, which is all science is to make weapons. Right. Yeah. Like, wasn't that sort of the problem was it with all the scientists? They were like, I love I want to learn this. I want to understand the universe in this way. I want to see if this works. Yeah. But I don't want all our thought and all our theories and all our practice and all our math and everything else to lead up to a weapon of mass destruction. Right. I don't think that should be the culmination of my life's work. Right. And so it's very funny to it, that just read it with that kind of in your mind, thinking about Oppenheimer, thinking. I, I love this. This is the, exactly what I want to be doing with my time, making yeah. and breaking and learning and discovering and changing and doing and theorizing and whatever. But 
the person I am betrothed to, the person I am beholden to needs me to do something with you I don't like. Yeah. And that, I'm really upset about that. And I wish yeah. that I could, I didn't have to. Right. You know? Right, right. I don't know. Well, you can read it a lot of different ways, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> it it works. Work. Which is uh, the sign of a great poem, right? Very true. Great job, John. It's almost uh, like John Dunn. John Dunn. Kind of good. I think he's going somewhere. Kind of good guy, at writing. Keep an eye on that kid <laughs> as a poet. <laughs> Because I feel like uh, the bell's going to toll for him. Oh, is that John Dunn? <laughs> yeah, remember oh, the, bell the bell tolls? Yeah, it tolls for thee, oh. John Dunn. Excuse me. Dunn. <laughs> That's how you remember it's John Dunn, because his name is like a bell. Oh, smart. But, okay, all that being said, we've got a couple more ladies to get to. That's right. We mentioned earlier that his affair with Gene was ended by his relationship with Kitty who would later become his wife. So let's take a quick break and we will tell you all about Mrs. Oppenheimer right after these words. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.
The Nikki Glazer Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glazer Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glazer Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glazer Podcast to start listening. Welcome back, everyone. So Catherine Puning was an only child. She was born in Germany, but after her father Franz invented a new kind of blast furnace, her family emigrated to America in 1913 to make their fortune. Mm -hmm. Now, Kitty spoke both German and English fluently. She spoke English without any German accent, and she apparently claimed that her father was a prince and her mother was related to Queen Victoria. Ooh, hoo, hoo. Uh-huh. She actually, she believed this. This was information right. given to her about her family and their past. Yeah. But it wasn't true. In fact, her mother's most famous relative was not Queen Victoria, not but a cousin named Wilhelm Keitel, who was Germany's war minister during World War II, who was hated even by his own military colleagues for being too much of a yes man to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Damn, even when the Nazis even other were like, Nazis, yeah. <laughs> too much of it. Too much of a daddy's boy. <laughs> when, when the Nazis are like, "Whoa, calm down, bro," with the Hitler talk. <laughs> You're a real Führer, bro, and Jeez. I don't care for it. Yikes. Even Hitler himself <laughs> said that Keitel quote had the brains of a movie usher. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> even Hitler's like, "What a dumbass." Wow. It's true, though. He said he was as loyal as a dog, though, so he would always let him do all kinds of crazy shit. Although, kind of rude to movie ushers, Hitler. I guess another group that Hitler wasn't too fond <laughs> Yet of. Yet another group movie that he discriminated ushers. against. Oh, not fans of Hitler on this show. Um, <laughs> tell your friends. So Catherine, who was better known as Kitty, went to Europe to study after high school. And it's not likely that she took many classes, but she did meet her first husband, Frank Ramsayer, a Harvard grad studying music in Paris. Now, crossover alert, Ramsayer's teacher was Nadia Boulanger, whose career was helped along quite a bit by our old friend, Winneretta Singer. Boom. Patronized. It's a small world. It's a small world. It is. So anyway, Kitty and Frank, they got married on Christmas Eve in 1932, but it did not last long. Kitty got an annulment only a year later on December 20th, 1933. Mm. She told friends that she had found and read Frank's diary and discovered that he was both gay and a drug addict. Oh. So she's like, let me get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I have so many problems. With the First of all, she's reading his diary. I that mean, seems wrong. Right. <laughs> you got a problem with personal property or something. <laughs> but also, like, maybe she had to read it because she's like, there's something not right about Frank. He's running around doing crazy shit. And she's like, let me look at this diary and finds out he's taking crazy drugs yeah. and seeing men on the side or mm -hmm. whatever. At any rate, she said, um, let me get out of here. So at a New Year's party, only a few days later, mm. Kitty met Joseph Dalit Jr. He was a Dartmouth dropout, card-carrying communist, and she moved in with him. Uh, never married him officially, but she became his common-law wife. Okay. Uh, so they lived together long enough, basically, that they had legal protection she joined the Communist Party after proving her loyalty by distributing copies of The Daily Worker on the streets. 
But they lived in like a dilapidated boarding house. They collected unemployment to get by. It was just kind of a a, a real proletariat way of living that the blue-butted kitty kind of got fed up with. She said, I can't take it anymore. She moved back in with her parents. Months went by and she heard nothing from Joe, uh, which kind of pissed her off because she's like, I might not be living with you, but we're still yeah. together. So what, yeah. what's going on? And then she discovered that her mother, Kath, had been intercepting Joe's letters to oh, her. Oh, no. And we won't get too much into Kath, but Ann Wilson, one of Oppenheimer's secretaries, said this about Kitty's mother, quote, She was a real dragon, a hard, repressive woman. She disappeared one day over the side of a transatlantic ship, and nobody missed her. That says it all. Damn. Damn, Anne. <laughs> Anne is. Wow. She fell off a food. ship and drowned, and we were like, uh, bye. Big deal. See ya. Who? Kath who? Kath who? Wow. I mean, it's that is a crazy thing to say about somebody. <laughs> that is. You got to really do something. I don't know what she did to Anne. <laughs> I don't either, but, but she, it feels personal. pretty personal. But it was a huge rift between uh, Kitty and her mom, of yeah, course, when she sure, discovered this. Sure. Now, the last letter from Joe to Kitty said that he was going to join a volunteer regiment in Spain to fight against Franco. So she finally gets a hold of these letters, mm -hmm. finds out that this is going on. She traveled to Paris to meet up with him. And he went across the border into Spain and he joined the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. Mm -hmm. Joe would write Kitty letters from the front. One read, quote, Each time up in the lines that I see a fascist, I am sure that I'll be more effective if I say to myself, That bastard is trying to keep you away from Kitty. So I'll say it and do my job right. So Kitty finally got permission to join him in Spain, but before she could arrange her travel, she had to be hospitalized for ovarian cysts, and she was sent back to England to recover. Then she was all set to leave for Spain when she found out that Joe had been killed in action on October 17th of 1937. His letters to her were published into a book the next year called Letters from Spain by Joe Dallet, American Volunteer to His Wife. Now, it might be that Joe Dallet was Kitty's Jean Tatlock in a way, because in a book by Janet Conant called 109 East Palace, Robert Oppenheimer and the Secret City of Los Alamos, Kitty's friend Shirley Barnett says, that Dalit was, quote, the great love of her life, whose death she never really got over. So that's why she might be his Gene Tatlock in sort of that, like, he's, she went on, you know, to have a long-lasting marriage with someone else, but this was the one this that... This was the one. ...that mattered. Yeah. That really yeah. got to her, yeah. That might have been a point of, I don't know, of bonding between her and Robert. I, yeah. I, I wonder, yeah. you know, if they talked about anything like that in, and they both understood one another about having this person in their past who yeah, yeah. still was in their heart and was right. very important to them or right. whatever. Uh, Kitty came back to the U.S. She enrolled at the University of Pennsylvania to complete her undergraduate degree in botany, finally. That's what she was supposed to be doing <laughs> all this all this time, but she, had, but she was kind of having a good time, so she didn't do that. Uh, so she's finally trying to get her botany degree, and that's where she met Richard Stewart Harrison, a doctor with Oxford credentials. He proposed to her. She accepted, but only on the condition that he let her stay in Pennsylvania to complete her degree and then also allow her to pursue a postdoctorate to get her PhD, okay. um, which was probably important to mention ahead of time at that time, because a lot of a lot of men in this time period would have expected her to leave school yeah, yeah. and start keeping his house and having right. his babies and stuff. So she probably was like, look, let me just let you know at the outset, I want a career as a botanist. Yeah. And he's like, cool, no problem. 
They were married in November 1938, and not long after, Richard left for his residency at Caltech. So they lived apart for six months. He's in California. She's in Pennsylvania. Then Kitty graduated with honors from UPenn. She's a smart lady. She was offered a research fellowship at Caltech. She was working with a physicist named Charles Lauritsen. So she finally moves to California, and she and Richard are, like, living in the same house, like right. husband and wife. In August 1939, her boss, Charles Lauritsen, and his wife threw a garden party. Richard and Kitty Harrison attended. And that is where she met the tall, slim, brilliant Robert Oppenheimer. Ooh. She was immediately enamored by him, and they started an affair pretty soon after. Well. I think this is kind of ridiculous because she's been married to Richard for, like, less than a year. Right. They've barely been married because he has not been in the same state as her yeah. <laughs> for six months. And then she immediately starts sleeping with somebody else. <laughs> well, it's tough to get a picture of Kitty's personality simply because everybody kind of seems to have their own opinion about her. Yeah. Like Kat Meads in her article for Decadent Review, which is called Plaster Cast, Martini Glass, Potted Orchid, The Life of Kitty Oppenheimer. She lays out all the various things that people said against Kitty. First, you know, she was volatile. She was snooty, selfish, drunk. She was a bad mother. She was a bad daughter. She had a scathing tongue. She was an abusive friend or cruel. Uh, she could never be without a man. Like all these really nasty things. And her sister-in-law, Jackie Oppenheimer, said, quote, Kitty was a schemer. She was a phony. All her political convictions were phony. All her ideas were borrowed. She was one of the few really evil people that I've known in my life. <laughs> I love your Jackie Oppenheimer. <laughs> Jackie Oppenheimer yeah. So fun. <laughs> but Kitty's friends said that she was vivacious and quick-witted. She was intelligent. She was actually really fun to be around. Mm -hmm. Her neighbor, who at first didn't like her but later became her friend, said, quote, at her worst, she was absolutely without guile, brave as a little lion, and fiercely loyal to her own team. Ooh. And her friend Verna Hobson, who was one of Oppenheimer's secretaries, said, quote, she was Robert's greatest confidant and advisor. He told her everything. He leaned on her tremendously. I don't know what that JFK. was. <laughs> right? Was that? It was like Kennedy? JFK has been living in New Jersey for a couple of years. I don't know. <laughs> I want you to play every woman in a <laughs> 1940s and 50s project. <laughs> yeah, that'll go over well. <laughs> It'll work out great. We felt like the women didn't get enough screen time in Oppenheimer. So, so Eli's going to play all of them. Here's a man playing all of them. <laughs> Oh, God, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> All right. So Kitty and Oppenheimer started having an affair and it was like hot and heavy mm. from the get go. Yeah. Uh, she, at one point, she went to see Oppenheimer at Christmas without her husband. Whoops. Just going to see Oppenheimer. <laughs> Another time, Oppenheimer invited both Richard and Kitty to his ranch in New Mexico, Perro Caliente. <laughs> Robert, at some point, had developed a weak case of tuberculosis. He was told, go to a warm climate, you know, to recover. Kind of like um, Doc, Doc Holliday. Holliday yeah, <laughs> Tombstone, yeah. Yep. So he went to a ranch in New Mexico, and he fell in love with the desert. Absolutely loved it there. He found out that the ranch was available for lease, and he said, hot dog. <laughs> Pero caliente. So then he named it hot dog. Oh, that's great. That's funny. <laughs> that's the story of the ranch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, he's like, come, you know, come on down to Perro Caliente, you guys, and like hang out on my ranch. Well, Richard said, oh, darn it. I can't go. I just got too much work Whoops. at the hospital. So Kitty was like, well, I don't have any work. <laughs> and she went alone. <laughs> 
for two months. She stayed for two months with Robert Oppenheimer at his ranch, along with his friend Robert Serber and Robert's wife, Charlotte. Okay. And thanks to her wealthy upbringing, Kitty was an expert horsewoman. She very much impressed people with her equestrian skills. Yeah. So she and Oppenheimer rode horses together all Mm. the time. And there's this fun story about how one time they rode out to stay overnight with a friend of Robert's named Katie. But the next day, Katie turned up at Perro Caliente because she had to return Kitty's nightgown, which had been left under Robert Oppenheimer's pillow. She had to take that off and like tuck it up under the pillow. (laughs) (laughs) So it was kind of like, um, girl, you left this in a very obvious place. (laughs) Yikes. I know exactly what y'all were doing. Can I say, side note, we saw Oppenheimer, the 70 millimeter IMAX up at Mala, Georgia, one of the few theaters in the world to have that print. Yes, lucky yes. Um, and I'll say, actually, oddly, it was almost too big. Like I was having a hard time focusing on all the dialogue because I'm like turning my head left and right mm-hmm. uh, to listen to it. But the scenes where Robert and Kitty are on horseback in the New Mexico desert are some of the most beautiful shots yes. I've seen on a you know 300 foot tall screen, no. <laughs> whatever it was. Just stunning. I mean, you know, y'all know if you listen to the show that we love the desert out there. It's true. But the beautiful scenery of them on this enormous IMAX screen riding horses across the New Mexico desert is unlike anything. Gorgeous. Unparalleled. Yeah. Now, with all these desert shenanigans, maybe it's no surprise that Kitty got pregnant while she was out there. Whoops. Common side effects. Uh-huh. And of I'll also constant sex. Yeah, right. <laughs> and also, I got to say, Richard, I don't know if he was just oblivious or didn't I mean, care or what, but he's like, oh, you're the guy that you love that you spent Christmas with alone last year invited us both out to the desert. Well, I can't go. Why don't you go yourself, honey, for a couple of months is, you know, I don't Again, I don't know if it's just if he's just dumb <laughs> or didn't care. Or was I cool wonder with that too. I wonder that too. It's uh, it's kind of making me think of our a lot of our Parisian counterparts in uh-huh. even similar time frames, right? Where they're like, oh, or or British or whatever, where they're wealthy and they're like, I married somebody, but whatever. We all have our little, yeah. you know, yeah. our little side relationships, and it's very accepted yeah. in those circles. So maybe he was like, all right, whatever, as long as she's entertained, I'm I'm busy, so fine. I and guess I don't know. She was so allegedly. Uh, volatile person she probably didn't hold back at all so maybe he knew that it's like i'm like no you shouldn't go by yourself that all i'm gonna get is an earful that's true and i don't feel like invoking the wrath of kitty so look if you want to go spend a couple months with robert go for it okay right or he maybe did get an earful and she just went and did what she wanted anyway regardless yeah who knows yeah okay well let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll hear a lot more about this pregnancy what kind of parents the Oppenheimers were, mm-hmm. and lots, lots more. So yeah. we'll see you in a minute. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. 
We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. Welcome back, everybody. Last we left, Kitty and Robert were in the desert Uh together and they had gotten pregnant. And Kitty had gotten her divorce and got Robert to marry her. Yeah. One of the more damning things that people had to say against Kitty was that she sort of maybe forced Robert's hand on this one. She admitted to his secretary, Ann Wilson, that she got him to marry her, quote, the old-fashioned way. So she got pregnant on purpose with him. And yeah. I mean, again, when you're sleeping with someone for two months, it's hard not to like to be like, oh, it was on purpose. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it, she didn't try to not do it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And it worked. Robert called Richard Harrison to break the news and he convinced Richard to give Kitty a divorce so that he could marry her instead. Bird and Sherman in American Prometheus wrote, quote, it was all very civilized. I mean, I guess that's preferable, I'm, I'm but... Just... Beep, beep, beep. Hello, Mr. Richard Sherman. <laughs> Robert Oppenheimer here. Yes, yes. Yes, I'm here with your wife, Kitty. Uh, <laughs> so sorry to send you this uh, uncomfortable news, but uh, by Jove, I seem to have gotten your wife pregnant. <laughs> by Jove? <laughs> you know, it's the funniest thing. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> But uh, thought maybe I ought to marry her instead of you. How do you how do you feel about that, sir? Oh, uh, uh, well, uh, everything you say sounds 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 good. I mean, <laughs> you gotta make her an honest woman out of her. Yeah, right. I certainly couldn't. <laughs> oh yeah, speculation station. Richard was like, oh thank God. Uh, maybe yeah, he was. Please. I mean, I don't know. Please go for it. 
he might have been because I think the the main argument he had against it was that getting a divorce would harm his like reputation or something, yeah. you know, because it still was not great to get a divorce. Right, right, right. Uh, so he was kind of like, I'm worried about my professional, you know, my career or whatever yeah. if I get a divorce. Yeah. So it wasn't so much like, but I love her, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Kitty moved to Reno, Nevada for six weeks and got her divorce, mm-hmm. which we have mentioned in previous episodes that Nevada for the longest time, maybe still was like the place to get a quick divorce. That's right. They specifically crafted their laws to promote divorce tourism, basically. So she got her divorce there and she married Robert Oppenheimer the very next day on November 2nd of 1940. In May of 1941, Kitty gave birth to their son, Peter Oppenheimer. But as Kat Meads writes, quote, he would not be the focus of either of his parents' lives. Mm-hmm. In fact, Robert and Kitty left Peter with their friends, the Chevaliers, for two months while they took a vacation to Perro Caliente. Now, at this point, Robert started seeing Jean Tatlock again. That's right. So this is this is before her suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was with Kitty's knowledge, although maybe not her approval. He might have been real similar to her in terms of just like, look, I'm going to do what this. I'm gonna do. Yeah. Although it makes me wonder, knowing about Joe Dallet yeah. and, and thinking, did they ever, you know, get close in that way where they said, this is the person I really love right you know of course, Dallet, i love her. you and we're good but like yeah. this is my love you know what i mean and so she was maybe more able to understand about gene yeah than it would seem from we first, have old loves you know. in our lives that are forever right. part of us right so yeah, yeah she might have understood that better than better than most yeah, yeah maybe and she so. might have been like if i had broken up with joe I think I might still be wanting to see him, too. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I get it. You know, she but might have gotten it even if she didn't like it. Yeah, simultaneously, that might even make it worse for worse. her, too. It'd yeah, be like, yeah. oh, you're going to go hang out with the the one that got away, the uh-huh. true love of your life. Cute. Yeah. Yeah. But then everything really changed because Japan bombed Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entered World War II. And at this point, Robert Oppenheimer was put in charge of the Manhattan Project. Originally, Kitty was like sort of excited about this whole Manhattan project, Los uh-huh. Alamos thing. She's like, cool, we like to camp and stuff. Like, yeah. this will be fine. But life in Los Alamos was really hard on the scientists' wives. It was harder than anyone could have predicted. Yeah. Again, if you haven't seen the movie or you don't know much about this peri- time period, just a quick debrief on Los Alamos. In order to test this bomb, they had to be somewhere in the country where there wasn't a lot of residents, you mm-hmm. know, around to be affected or to see what they were up to. Yeah. And they built a city yeah. uh, in the middle of basically yeah. middle of nowhere in Mexico. And they called it Los Alamos. There so was, that's, that's what this is. There was Hastily so much, erected city. Yeah. There was so much um, paranoia about, even though we were allied with them, about Russian spies trying to learn about what we were doing. And obviously the Germans as well. Mm-hmm. But in particular, in particular, uh, the American government was worried about communist spies also, you know, copying what we had because everyone was working on um, nuclear science That's at this right. point and how to split the atom and how mm-hmm. to turn that into a weapon. Mm-hmm. So incredibly secretive. That's why Robert, you know, among the reasons Robert wasn't allowed to leave Los Alamos, really, or go see Gene or, you know, even speak candidly with any of his colleagues or his family or anything like that. None That's of them right. living there were. Very top secret situation. Yeah. So Los Alamos 
kind of a hard place to live, turns yeah. out. Uh, yeah. You know, they're in the desert. Water, electrical power, both very scarce. Mm-hmm. Fruits and veggies, not fresh. Because right. they're having to truck them in from wherever. Uh-huh. Their husbands could not talk to them freely about their work as they had oh, before. Yeah. So there's this whole new strain on their marriages. Even within Los Alamos, exactly. you couldn't go home and talk to your partner about what you did at work today. Everybody in the city had different security Mm -hmm. clearances. So you literally couldn't, you had to lie. I mean, you had to, you know, you had to, couldn't, even if you're not lying, it's still, there's a strain, right? If you can't talk openly with your spouse. So there was a strain in these marriages. It'd be like me coming to you if I still worked in movies and television Mm -hmm. and saying, hey, we're moving to the middle of desert because I got a gig on on a show. And you're like, cool, what's the show? Uh, I sent an NDA. I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. You're coming with me. You're going to live in a ramshackle apartment with no air conditioning. And I'm going to be working for 16 hours a day. And when I come home and you say, how was work? I'm going to say, what work? Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, sounds fun. Yeah, kind of. I know, right? Uh, of course, these women could not reveal to their relatives where they were. Right. Um, so they couldn't have any visitors. They couldn't they couldn't liven shit up with any kind of anything like that. Uh, right. Mail was censored going in and out. No visitors were allowed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This this was a really difficult place to live uh, in the book. Standing by and making do women of wartime Los Alamos, a woman named Jane Wilson writes, quote, in the mountains of New Mexico, the women aged. We aged from day to day. Living at Los Alamos was something like living in jail. I bet quite literally, too, because, I mean, they didn't have the moisturizer technology that we have today. They literally were aging in that sand. Very true. Uh, Kitty worked briefly as a lab tech, so she actually did work on the project to an extent. She was examining blood to see the effects of radiation poisoning. But she then got pregnant oh, and yeah. stopped working. And uh, she was far from the only one to get pregnant. Uh, oh. yeah, we just talked about how boring Los Alamos is. What else is there <laughs> to do? Uh, and The Atlantic says that the Los Alamos baby boom was so big that General Leslie Grove started being like, the U.S. Army shouldn't have to pay all these maternity bills. <laughs> what? Well, excuse me, Mr. Groves, but it's your fault we got all these maternity bills to begin with. I was like, bitch, you're already spending billions of dollars on this yeah. project. Like, what's a few baby deliveries? <laughs> right. Calm the fuck down. But that's uh-huh. probably why he was like going through trying to penny pinch. <laughs> Whatever. I think that's just funny thinking about Leslie Groves being like, too many babies. <laughs> so anyway, uh, she got pregnant. And in December 1944, they welcomed Catherine Tony Oppenheimer to the world. And like every other baby born at Los Alamos, the birthplace was recorded as P.O. Box 1663. Oh, Because, of course, they couldn't. Because when you turn that upside down, <laughs> it's yes. E... Nine nine I, which is the formula for nuclear things. For your, <laughs> look, I don't know. You're circling. Find it. Find it. There's something. There's a conspiracy. Uh, P.O. Box 1663. You rearrange that, and you get three X O six B P P T P. Look. Oh God. Uh. Well. After Tony was born, Kitty had some serious depression. Now, partly, obviously, this was from just being isolated at Los Alamos, right? Probably mm-hmm. one of the most depressing towns in America Easily. at the time. Uh, built out of plywood in a day, <laughs> you know. And, a bunch of government guys running around. Ah, gross. Ugh, gross. No one on can talk parade. to each other. <laughs> you go out and try to have a drink with friends. Oh, what you been up to? Uh, you know, I can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, I can't talk about that. I mean... 
Cool. I hope Great. you all read a book or something. Right. You got a book club or something. Yeah, going. right. <laughs> the Los Alamos <laughs> book club. But her depression also probably came partly due to some postpartum depression, right? right. So, which they think she probably had after Peter as well. So all this being said, she left Tony with another scientist family and moved back to her parents' house for three months. And she took their son, Peter, with her. Mm -hmm. So obviously, like, Robert's too busy to be single dad because mm -hmm. he's heading up the nuclear bomb project. Um, and she needed to get out of town. So while Kitty's out of town, let's turn our attention to the third woman in this Oppenheimer trinity, which also brings us to this episode's side piece. Great minds think alike. Dr. Ruth Sherman Tolman was a powerhouse smarty pants. That's an official term. That's right. That was her degree. TM. <laughs> she was a clinical psychologist. She's a university professor. She's the author of six books. And she created some of the first treatments for post-traumatic stress disorder and was the first woman elected to the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. Mm. So just a lot of boxes checked Crushing for it. Dr. Ruth Sherman Tolman here. Her husband was Richard Tolman and his brother created this panel with the psychological study of social issues mm -hmm. so there was some controversy about her being elected to the panel like right. maybe you know, there's a little nepotism going on here and ruth said hell no straight up like i worked hard i'm damn good i got this on my own merit That's it don't right. matter who my brother-in-law is mm -hmm. i deserve this position so she went instead of being in the oppenheimer movie was in the barbie movie saying <laughs> i worked hard and i deserve this right yeah exactly <laughs> exactly Hi, Barbie. <laughs> so during the war, she was recruited to several government agencies who were hiring psychologists, and she worked to address the discrimination that women psychologists were experiencing. Women psychologists weren't being informed about new scholarly findings, for instance, stuff like that, just like an, an active campaign to keep women out of, the, of right. the field. It wasn't just like, I feel disrespected by my male co. No. It was like, literally, they're not telling me information I need to know yeah. about my field of study. Yeah, she walks into a room and is like, oh, I didn't realize there was a meeting today. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're just ending. Sorry, forgot to tell you. Right, Bye. wrote it on the men's bathroom wall. Uh -huh. Too bad you didn't see it, yeah. you know, that type of shit. Now, her final wartime assignment was developing psychological stability tests for field agent assessments for the Office of Strategic Services, which is now known as the CIA. So she came in, was like, can you handle it? Here, yeah. Here's a answer these 10 questions. We're going to find out which uh, the bear character are you. <laughs> and that'll tell me whether or not she's the original BuzzFeed yeah. quiz. Then she moved on to making BuzzFeed quizzes CIA, about which yeah. kind of onion you are. <laughs> Um, I just think that's so cool. Uh, yeah, she had to figure out, I guess, probably A, can you handle it? Yeah. And B, are you a psychopath and you will make horrible decisions? Right. You know, in the field and stuff. So right. She, so she's she's doing some serious oh, yeah. fucking work. Because you, you might be like, oh, this guy, he's brilliant. Oh. And he can totally handle the pressure. He can kill and anybody. And he's a sociopath. <laughs> who doesn't care about human life. So maybe mm. we shouldn't have him in charge of the A-bomb. You know, yeah. Right, exactly. He's, yeah. There's a different place for him. Right. Uh, in the Guantanamo or something. <laughs> but Let's not, not put him there either. I know, right? Actually, don't put him in the CIA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, maybe he's just... Not a government a employee. Coldstone Creamery or something. <laughs> it's better for him. Well, I tried to work at the CIA, but I'm <laughs> applying today at Coldstone Creamery <laughs> because they said I was too much of a psychopath. Yeah, I didn't value human life enough. So and anyway, perfect for a Coldstone. <laughs> is that butter pecan you said? All right. All right. So, Ruth, 
total boss bitch. She's also about 10 years older than Robert Oppenheimer. So just so you have her, oh, her okay. age correct. The flip between the him flip, and exactly. Jean. She's, a, she's older yeah, than him. Yeah, okay. Um, and Richard and Ruth had been friends with Robert Oppenheimer for years. Sure. Uh, Richard Tolman actually literally wrote the book on statistical mechanics. Uh, hmm. Like 100% literally wrote that book. <laughs> and Oppenheimer used his work to prove his theories about stars collapsing into black holes. Uh, it's, it's called the Tolman-Oppenheimer-Volkoff limit. I love that. And this is something that I learned from the movie, too, in, yeah. in, the, in the opening scenes, mm-hmm. is that Oppenheimer was so... was like basically came up with the idea that stars collapse into black holes. I, know, I, did, not I did not know, know that, that he was involved in astrophysics like that. That's it's, so cool. It's funny how much of this quantum mechanics and stuff I thought was older yeah. than, than it was. And of course, at this time, it was brand new field of right. study. So it's right. really interesting. Um, I'm not smart enough to understand any of it, but <laughs> but <laughs> I love it. I think it's fascinating. So Richard Tolman, also badass uh, brain guy. And he worked as one of General Leslie Grove's scientific advisors during the war. Okay. So he and Ruth both high-level uh, government work, government service during the war. Yeah. Uh, so they bought a house in Washington, D.C. And Oppenheimer usually stayed with them when he had to travel to the Capitol for meetings. He, you know, you see, him, he didn't leave Los Alamos very much. But when he yeah. did, it was to, like, meet with politicians, tell them how it was going, get, get you know, new deadlines or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So he would usually stay there. And most scholars say that Ruth and Robert Oppenheimer had an affair, usually starting around the time of her CIA service mm, of this OSS okay, okay. assessment tests. Atomic Love Story authors Klaus and Strashinsky told The Independent, quote, Ruth and Robert were deep and close friends for decades. He may have loved Kitty, but on some level, he did not respect her. Ruth, he respected and admired. Hmm. He relied on her for advice and the sort of comfort only a good friend can provide. Hmm. One of Oppenheimer's secretaries said he always kept one of Ruth's letters in his pocket. And Megan George, writing for FeministVoices.com, says, quote, Friends would often drop into the Tolman residence to find the couple alone in their dressing gowns. And says the affair went on after Richard Tolman died as well. So it was kind of a long-standing thing. But Klaus and Straczynski also decided after all their research that there was no evidence of a physical affair between these two. At most, this was just like a a very close emotional bond, right? Mm -hmm. Two people found something they can connect to that probably, again, as with many of the people in Oppenheimer's life, how many people can he actually talk to on a certain level? Yeah. There's not many out there. Mm -hmm. So he got very close to people like this. Um, Klaus Straczynski told The Independent that Ernest Lawrence, who's the character that Josh Hartnett plays in the movie, was likely responsible for all the rumors that were flying around about Oppenheimer and Ruth because he had, quote, a long list of grievances, personal and professional, against Oppenheimer. Damn, so he was just stirring the shit. Talking shit, talking shit. But they also point out that Kitty, who was known as, quote, a jealous person, never showed any signs of being suspicious of her husband and his friend Ruth. Mm-hmm. Although clearly she would have had plenty of reason to. He's spending so much time with her. But maybe she was quite clear and knew that there wasn't an affair going on between them. Right. It's also like he doesn't seem to be very secretive about his affairs. Like right. He kind of tells, right. listen, I'm going to go see Jean. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, what, yeah, I don't care if you like it or not. Yeah. You know, I just that's what I'm doing. So I don't know why he would lie about Ruth to her. You right. know, why would he cover that up? But anyway. So all that to say, it's not really clear how sexual this relationship might have been, um, whatever that's worth. But it's 
presented more or less as fact in the movie that they had a sexual relationship and it seems to be mostly accepted by a lot of Oppenheimer and Ruth biographers. Right. Some even say that Richard Tolman, her husband, died of a broken heart when he discovered their affair because mm. he died of a heart attack in 1948. And I'll say, based on what we've heard here, husbands of the 1930s and 40s, um, maybe stop making Robert Oppenheimer uh, you and your wife's best single friend because he keeps coming in and falling in love. He will steal your wife with your wife, like it's, and, and she loves him too. So maybe right, and hide your wives from Robert Oppenheimer. Hide fellas. your fucking wives. And I will say these are only three of the women that he was with. Robert Oppenheimer was with many other women. Yeah, and some of them were married. He he would he very frequently had affairs with married women. So. Here's the thing about Oppenheimer: he seems very towering and. And he's got this really, like, just kind of impressive presence. He seems mm -hmm. like he's so smart. He's mm -hmm. kind of intimidating. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons that they picked him for leading the Manhattan Project is that he was so dang personable. That's right. People loved him. They liked hanging out with him. He was really charming. He knew how to work with people. He knew how to talk to people. And he's just very likable, which yeah. I, I did not expect to learn about him. Mm -hmm. As we were studying, I figured he would have been one of these, like, cold scientist that's sort of difficult to communicate with because he's, he's just operating on a different level. But he was actually kind of a total just dude. Yeah. Just like a guy. Which I kind of love knowing. Uh, like, he's the type of intellectual person that just like, he was so curious about s uh, such yeah. a wide variety of subjects yeah. that he was he was really interested in the people he was talking to, I think, right. for the most part. I, Carl Sagan and gives me that And he could talk about a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, Carl Sagan is a right. great, great example. People did say with Robert Oppenheimer, he was just so magnetic that male or female, you just couldn't help but fall in love yeah. with him Yeah. At, on some level or another, so... No. Yeah, maybe hide your wives <laughs> around <laughs> around Oppenheimer. So Robert Oppenheimer may or may not have been having a bi-coastal affair with his friend's wife in D.C., okay. dealing with his postpartum depressed wife, Kitty, uh -huh. and trying to get the atomic bomb completed successfully all at the same time. Uh, no pressure. No pressure, sir. <laughs> maybe as much pressure on him as there was inside the hydrogen bomb. Yeah, yeah. Which we right. learned is all about pressure. Quite a lot of pressure going on in there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if he was not actually sleeping with Ruth, um, whatever she did provide in, in the way of uh, making him feel better about his life, I yeah. think he needed it. Yeah. <laughs> he needed yeah. that letter or whatever right. she was saying to him. Regardless of the security protocol and stuff on Los Alamos, Robert Oppenheimer did keep Kitty in the loop right. about what he was up to. So when the Trinity test was successful, they did that on, on a mesa miles and miles away from Los Alamos. Right. Uh, so the wives are on Los Alamos. They have no idea what's going on. Their husbands right. have gone off to try this shit and they don't know what's happening. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, he wants to share with Kitty whether or not any of this shit worked. Yeah, whether it was worth it. Right. right? So, But he can't, of course, can't call her and be like, all right, great job, babe. Like, oh, yeah, he, they're listening know. to every phone call. Exactly. So what he did was he called Kitty and told her, quote, you can change the sheets. Oh, that and was that was their little code. Okay. So he was still telling her what was up. Yeah. And clear, like, you know, just through all three of these women, you're seeing how much he needs their advice. He likes to, to hear what they have to say. Like yeah. he apparently was a, you know, Kitty was his main confidant. He clearly get advice from Ruth. Before Jean died, he clearly needed to hear from her yeah. and have her be a sounding board for him. So yeah. I think... Even as differently as he loved or respected or whatever these women, he clearly did have a lot of respect for their brains. Right. Um, regardless of who, how, how great they looked and 
to us yeah, <laughs> on the outside. Yeah. Well, and I, I do wonder if this is one of those situations where, and I know this is true in the past, it's still true today, I'm sure, where because he's a man and they are women, there's a degree to which, oh, I like you. I'm friends with you. I'm, I respect you. Mm-hmm. I consider you my, my equal. I must be romantically in love with you. Right. You know, and yeah. he, he can't, sort of can't differentiate. You know, and then if you're attractive on top of that and I'm, you know, physically attracted to you, well, here we go. The only solution That's is it. that we must want to be doing it, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to just just like another one of his guy friends. They're 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 equals. They have brilliant conversations. And that's it. Yeah. Like, we don't have to sleep with each other. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder if that ties into it, if he sort of misconstrued his feelings of companionship and respect and um, and just that sort of mutuality that they had yeah. intellectually yeah. confused that with feelings, like yeah. intimate feelings. I could totally see that. Yeah. I could completely see that being a problem. Yeah. People today still have yeah, a really exactly. hard time, yeah. as, you, as you said. Yeah. I think but that's how we got together, then. right? <laughs> what? <laughs> Well, when it started, you know, it turned it it blossomed into something different. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad it blossomed. It's I mean it's getting there. Oh my god. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna kick you out of this room. All right. So the Trinity test worked and the atomic bomb was dropped and so on and so forth. We know all that part pretty well. Yada right? yada yada. Yada yada, he changed the world. But once the war was over, of course, Robert Oppenheimer was a big shot. Yeah. He's a giant celebrity. Everybody he was like the greatest, most respected mind in the entire country. He, yeah. he had won the war, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So he took a job at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where Kitty raised orchids. She kind of got back to her botany roots and she had a greenhouse. She raised orchids there. And Robert would have rare species shipped in for her birthdays. So she would have new species to hang out with. But also by this time, Kitty, by some estimations, had become a bad, bad drunk, a oh, bad alcoholic. Yeah. Uh, she had always drank pretty heavily, but throughout her time at Los Alamos. But it was really after that that apparently it got kind of uncontrollable. She often had broken bones or bruises from drunken falls or car crashes. Mm. She would fall asleep smoking cigarettes. So she burned holes into her nightclothes and her sheets once mm. she even set the house on fire. Oh, my God. She was also in a lot of pain from pancreatitis, and she took a lot of painkillers for that. Mm. So Oppenheimer's friend, Robert Serber, actually says that all her falls and other erratic behavior is is due to the pills. Oh. He, he said he insisted that she did not drink any more than a normal person, which Let's just take that with a grain of salt. It's the 50s. Yeah, what <laughs> Everybody's you think drinking is incredibly yeah. heavily. Yeah. But well, she has like six drinks a day. Like, well, who doesn't? Normal, she gets up. She has a martini. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> so, just like me, a normal person. Right. So, you know, his idea of what was a normal amount of drinking might not have might right, not match right. ours today. But he, he's, he did think that a lot of her falling asleep or all that stuff was, yeah. was more about the, the painkillers. Pain sure, yeah. And a lot of their friends did say Robert Oppenheimer was pretty ambivalent about Kitty's drinking. Didn't okay. seem to find it to be a problem. Problem. So, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. But every portrayal of Kitty is as a drunk. So it was a right. big part of her characteristic, at least on the outside, for most people that yeah. she was drinking a bit too much. Yeah. Okay. So we're well over the hour mark at this point. <laughs> We've been having a great time learning yeah. about these women that Robert Oppenheimer got with. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely, I think easily arguable that they also changed the course of history through their involvement. Sure, I think so. whole event that really changed everything. So, um, but 
there's more to tell and it's too much. It's too much once at once, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's too much. And also, as we said at the beginning of the episode, I personally think that the rest of the story, we're going to be referencing stuff that does kind of come as a surprise in the third act of the movie because we're, you know, later into his life here. Mm-hmm. And I I was so just kind of shocked by some of those moments in the movie that, you know, I think it's better to see it first. Yeah, um, right Again, on. if you're a person who cares about that kind of stuff, totally. I'm a sensitive spoiler boy. So <laughs> that's, uh, that gets to me. But there is definitely more to touch on. Uh, you've got another... 20 minutes or so worth of story for Oppenheimer and then the rest of part two and we're dropping these both at the same time so you Mm -hmm. can go right into it if you want we're gonna give our I don't I don't think review is the right word so much as just like our thoughts yeah I think that's fair yeah on Oppenheimer and Barbie that's right right Um, of course yeah of course, the two movies that every actor in Hollywood was in. Seriously, oh my God. It's everyone you've ever heard of. It's in these two movies or episode six of The Bear. Of the Bear. That's exactly. the rest of them. <laughs> if you weren't on any one of those three projects, somebody lost your number or something. It's like, yeah. It's like how every British actor is in either Harry Potter, Doctor Who, or Game of Thrones. Oh, or Downton Abbey. Oh, sure, or Downton Abbey. All of them, really. And that, that kept England's actors working for a long time. And sure I think the rest... Of all actors were either in Oppenheimer, Barbie, or episode six, <laughs> season two of The Bear. Uh, at least they're working. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're working too. We got a whole other episode to bring you. Uh, I, I think it's really fun stuff. Please stick around, yeah. listen up, and let us know what you think of our little movie pseudo review too, because we have a we have a great time talking about movies. We sure do. Yeah, and we will talk your ear off if you give us the space. So. That's what we did. Um, <laughs> so go ahead, hop on over to episode two right now. Finish up Oppenheimer's story. And as always, let us know what you thought. Yeah, you know, we always love to hear from you guys. We love your suggestions. We love your random thoughts about stupid things we said or about the story overall or whatever. <laughs> so uh, reach out. Our email is ridiculousromance at gmail.com. That's right. You can find us on Instagram. I'm at oh great, it's Eli. I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at ridiculousromance. And you are awesome. You sure are. Pop over ya. for pop over for episode two, and we'll catch you at that one. I love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 